who needs God? Who needs God? And do we really need God? Some of us say yes, but we don't always live like it, right? Some of us say no, but we find it really difficult to completely dismiss God. I, ha I have a new friend who is an atheist um, who used to be in ministry. And I asked him the other day, and I wasn't trying to have a gotcha conversation. I, this was just a genuine conversation. I asked him, kind of laughing. I said, do you ever accidentally pray? And he said, yeah, sometimes it's just sort of a response. I said, I know, it's even when we are absolutely sure there's no God, it's really difficult to just kind of get God out of our system. For some people, the question isn't really, you know, do we need God or who needs God? For a lot of people, the real, the real question is, do we need religion? You know, who needs religion? And more Americans than ever are giving up on or backing away from religion. And the reason they're pulling away from religion and pulling away from God isn't because atheism is all that attractive. It's just that religion is less attractive. Religion is less so. In fact, more and more people in our culture, more and more people in the United States would say, Andy, religion is actually the problem. You know, we were brought up to believe that religion has answers, that religion is the solution. But more and more as we look around at what's happening in the world, it's easy to come to the conclusion that no, the truth is religion is the problem. Now, something really ha interesting happened that you may not be aware of. Right after 9-11, right after 9-11, when the World Trade Center um, was destroyed, Twin Towers were destroyed, the Pentagon was attacked. Right after that, there was an initial surge in this country around all things Christian and all things Jewish and basically almost all things religious. I remember, like many of you, where I was sitting when I saw the, the Trade Tower and I saw the Twin Towers fall. And I turned to, I was sitting with a couple of friends that would work with me, and I said to them, this Sunday is gonna be bigger than Easter for churches all over the country, and sure enough, it was. The next Sunday, churches were synagogues, everything was packed, everybody just, that, that next Sunday, everybody who hadn't been to church in a long time or weren't even sure what they believed, the churches were flooded. The second Sunday after 9-11, the churches were flooded. The third Sunday after 9-11, right back to normal. And then something else began to happen that perhaps you weren't aware of, but we've all been affected by. There was then this sort of surge, this sort of anti-religious surge that happened in our country. In fact, immediately following 9-11, immediately following 9-11, neuroscientist Sam Harris began writing a book that would eventually be published called The End of Faith. <clears throat> the End of Faith, the subtitle is Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. This was a scathing, scathing critique, not of Islam. This was a scathing critique of all religion. He turned it into publisher after publisher after publisher after publisher, and nobody wanted to touch it because the assumption was right after 9-11, a book that was anti-Christian would not be a book anyone would want to read, perhaps anti-Islam, but not anti-Christian. But after over a dozen publishers, and let me tell you what, when a dozen publishers turn down your manuscript, that's very discouraging. Over a dozen publishers turned down his manuscript, but he finally found one. And that book spent 33 weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list. Now, Christians hated this book. I mean, he got so much negative response from this book, he published another little book called Letter to a Christian Nation, Letter to a Christian Nation, that addresses specifically Christianity and Christians basically saying, you're the problem, 
or we're the problem. Religion is the problem. The same year this book came out, Richard Dawkins published his famous book, The God Delusion. At the opening section of this book, Richard Dawkins tells us specifically why he published this book. This was not simply a book about atheism. This was a book specifically targeting religion. Here's what he says in one of the opening paragraphs. If this book works as I intend, religious leaders, excuse me, religious readers, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. Over three million people purchased this book in over 35 different languages. The year after The God Delusion came out, Christopher Hitchens, journalist Christopher Hitchens, published his book, God Is Not Great. God Is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And once again, this was an attack on all religion. It was not so much an argument for atheism as it was to say religion is the problem. Religion is the problem, not a specific religion, all religion. Now, these guys were rock stars. They were on late night television, college campuses, YouTube sensations. Their debates were watched over and over and over. They sold millions and millions and millions of books. And while there was not a surge in our country of atheism, a significant percentage of our country, a significant percentage of the people in our country continued what had already begun, but it picked up speed. A significant percentage of people in our nation began to disconnect from all religion. In fact, so many people have disconnected from religion and disconnected from faith and disconnected from God. There's actually a name for this group. In fact, you may be familiar with this. They're now called the nuns, the nuns. You have to be careful how you spell it, the nuns, okay? These nuns are non-affiliated. They are non-affiliated. It's about 23% of the U.S. population. About 35% of millennials would say, we're just not affiliated. Mostly male, mostly left-leaning politically, um, theologically agnostic or apathetic. In other words, they don't know, they don't care, they just don't need it. The nuns would say, hey, we're not hostile toward it necessarily. We're just not affiliated with it. Don't ask us necessarily any hard questions. This isn't some new philosophical thing we've bought into. We're just done with religion. We're done with church. We're done with the God that we were presented with as children. We're just done. It's not that we find atheism all that attractive. It's just that we've lost our interest in religion. We find religion extraordinarily unattractive. Now, this is good news for some of you because for somebody here today and somebody watching, you now have a category. You didn't know you have a category. It's like, now I know what I am. I'm a nun, I'm a nun. So you can call your parents. They're so worried about you. Say, no, don't worry about me. I'm a nun, you know, and then that, you really have to spell it. Okay, I'm a nun. Um, for some of you today, you're in one of, our, in one of our buildings. When you get in the car that, you know, to go home, you'll be able to turn to your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your parents and say, hey, I know what I am. I'm a nun. I'm a nun. I just, I'm just not interested. I'm just not affiliated. I don't buy it. Don't ask me a bunch of hard questions. I'm still thinking it through, but here's what I know for sure. Religion and the God that I was presented with as a child have lost their appeal. Now, obviously I cannot speak for all religions. I would never pretend to do so. But the migration from Christianity, 
the nuns that have migrated from Christianity, and in our country, it is millions of people, millions of millennials that have basically, who grew up in church, who heard everything I heard growing up, know all the stories, can, you know, find the book of Revelation, know about a six-day creation. The majority of, the majority of the nuns in this country migrated from the Christian faith. And whereas I can't speak on behalf of all religion, I can say this with pretty much with, with confidence. The Christians that have migrated into the nun category, it is the church's fault. It is the church's fault. It's people like to do what I do. It's our fault. Because when you open the pages of the gospels, the four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read the account of Jesus and you look at his interaction with people, here's something that is absolutely unmissable. It is from the beginning all the way to the end that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. That people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. That Jesus, the person Jesus, not just the miracle worker, not just the teacher who taught things that we still can't figure out. There was something about Jesus that was attractive. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus and Jesus liked them back. And the church is supposedly the body of Jesus. So. If Christianity, if Christianity is not compelling, if Christianity is not compelling, if Christianity is so easy to migrate away from, I'm convinced it's because we have the wrong version. And the thing that convinces me of that more than anything are the deconversion stories that I read. For, for a long time, I've been fascinated with people who used to be Christians or would say, I grew up in church or I used to go to church and I'm not a Christian anymore. I love deconversion stories. There are podcasts full of deconversion stories, blogs, rants. I get letters. I've had conversations with people. I've had conversations with so many parents. Andy, would you talk to my son? Would you talk to my daughter? You know, they just finished their first year in college, and they're not sure they believe anymore. I mean, I, I think I've heard every possible deconversion story possible. I mean, sometimes it's instant because of tragedy. Sometimes it's a process. Sometimes it's a book somebody reads. Sometimes it's the new friends they have. I think I've heard every deconversion story possible or imaginable. And I have never yet, we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, I have yet to hear somebody who's explained the reason they deconverted from Christianity that actually had anything to do with Christianity. I've heard every story imaginable, I think. I'm sure there's some I haven't heard. But as I listen to these stories, it breaks my heart. As I listen to the people who talk about migrating away from God and faith and Christianity specifically, I think to myself, wait a minute. I don't believe in that God either. That's not even true. You know, the, the original first century of, uh, version of Christianity never embraced the ideas that you find so offensive, that much that you wanna walk away from are things that the Christian faith should have walked away from a long time ago. So, for the next few weeks, I want to try to correct that. <laughs> for the next few weeks, I want to address that. And to begin the discussion, I want to go way, way, way out on the outer edge of the conversation, and I would like to begin with an update on atheism. In fact, today's message is called Atheist 2.0, Atheist 2.0. And the reason I want to do this is not because so many people have checked the atheist box, not because so many people have stepped across that line, but because so many people in our country have stepped toward that line. Because when you step away from faith and when you step away from God, 
especially when you step away from faith and you step away from God without considering what you're stepping toward, oftentimes people find themselves in a situation they never meant to find themselves in. Bottom line is pretty much this. You cannot, you cannot move away from something without moving toward something else. And the good news is this. The new atheists, you know, Christopher Hitchens, um, you know, Sam Harris, uh, Richard Dawkins and others, the new atheists who've written all this, these books and all these articles, the new atheists have essentially updated us on atheism. They've updated atheism for the rest of us, thus Atheist 2.0. And what they remind us of and what I want you to understand, and especially if you would consider yourself a nun, you would consider yourself one of those people, I grew up in it, I grew up with it, I just don't buy it, I'm tired of it, it seems irrelevant. Here's what I want you to understand, and here's what they would want you to understand. That atheism is not simply disbelief in God. Atheism is not simply, I don't believe in God anymore. Atheism is actually a complex belief system that logically leads to some unsettling conclusions. That atheism is actually, it's a belief system like anything else. And it is a complex belief system, just like Christianity, just like any other world religion. It's a complex belief system that logically leads to some unsettling conclusions. Now, this is important. Unsettling is not a truth test. Unsettling is not a truth test. In other words, something can be unsettling and be true at the same time. For example, your teenage daughter's boyfriend or your teenage daughter's girlfriend, right? It's like it's true, it's true, but it's unsettling. It's true, it's true, but it's unsettling. Something can be absolutely true and absolutely unsettling at the same time. Unsettling is not a truth test, and here's why that's important. Many people, perhaps you, have stepped away from religion and specifically have stepped away from Christianity because of some of the unsettling outcomes or the unsettling results or the unsettling consequences of the Christian faith. Unsettling is not a truth test. Something can be absolutely true and unsettling, and that cuts both ways. Simply because some of the things we're gonna talk about today as it relates to atheism are unsettling, are, this is not an argument against atheism. In fact, my goal today is not to convince you that atheism is wrong at all. I simply want to update you on what it means to be an atheist in the 21st century because we know so much more than perhaps we knew when you studied atheism, if you ever studied it at all. And here's my agenda, because I have an agenda. For those of you who have stepped away, I want to scare you just a little bit. For those of you who have stepped away, I want to prod your thinking just a little bit because you cannot step away from one thing without stepping towards something else. Today is not an argument for Christianity. In fact, next week isn't either. Today is not an argument against atheism. It's not an argument for God. Today is just a huh. Today is just a if you choose to give up religion and if you choose especially to give up God entirely, then here is the alternative and you owe it to yourself to know. So real quickly, for the rest of our few minutes together today, I want to give you sort of the six tenets um, of atheism. In other words, if you're going to embrace atheism or if you're considering it, or if you're one of those people that you're kind of like me, you just hate to be inconsistent. I mean, some people can live with ambivalence. Some people can live with, well, I don't know and I don't care. That's very difficult for me. It's a personality thing. And if you're one of those people who are like, you know what, I've lost interest in God. I've lost interest in church. I've lost interest in religion. I really do agree with Christopher Hitchens. Religion is the problem. But then when you look at the alternatives, you're sort of churning a little bit because you're not sure which way to go. You're kind of caught in the middle. 
you're a nun. Today, I wanna explain what it means in the 21st century to embrace atheism. There's six things, the first three may be new, the last three are things that we all knew or heard about growing up. So here we go, the first one is this. I'm gonna call it the illusion of mind, the illusion of mind. If there is no God, and perhaps there's not, if there is no God, and I don't know how to say it any other way, look up here, there's no you in there. There's no you. The whole idea of mind, you know what our brains are, but the whole idea of mind, the mind sort of sits on top of or sits outside of this intangible thing we call the mind. The mind is an illusion. In a world that is biology, chemistry, and physics, in a world where there's nothing but biology, chemistry, and physics, there is no place for, there is no room for the mind. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the, I guess, the thing that brought this you know, front and center for me. Years ago, I read Christopher Hitchens' book um, entitled Mortality. Christopher Hitchens passed away in 2011 from esophageal cancer. Um, he had, he actually, he died from pneumonia related uh, to his cancer. When he realized that essentially this disease was a death sentence, he decided to write a book. He was a journalist, he's an atheist, he's the, the, one of the, the new atheists. He decided to write a book and basically chronicle or journal the final months or year or weeks of his life. In fact, I read this book, book a long time ago. If I remember correctly, I think the last two chapters are like sentences. He was at the very end and all he could get out as he was dictating toward the end, uh, I believe to his wife, um, were just some sentences. So this is basically the journal of a dying atheist. It was a fascinating, fascinating book. Now you're looking at me like, you read stuff like that? I'm like, yes, yes, this is the kind of stuff I read. Right? Isn't that encouraging? Anyway. I'm reading it because it was, it was fascinating. I mean, I grew up in this theistic worldview where, you know, God and heaven, you know, that's what I've grown up believing. So here's a guy who's gonna go all the way out with, you know, when it's over, it's over. So in the book, because he was dealing with cancer, his do he would have conversations with his doctors constantly. And his doctors would say things like this. this is, these are the types of things doctors say. They would say, um, Christopher, your body is fighting. You know, your body is trying. Your body is reacting to. They kept responding to his body, his body, his body. And in the book, he said, I finally said to my doctors, I don't have a body. I am a body. I don't have a body. I am a body. Now, when I read this, I, I, I closed the book and I thought about that. I thought, that's it. If there is no God, if everything is chemistry, biology, driven by the laws of physics and the laws of nature, then that's true. There's no Andy. This is, I am just a body. And I thought, I'm gonna try to live this way because I don't think you can. But I thought, I'm gonna try for a couple of days. What would it look like to live your life as if you are just a body? And my three kids, just bodies. Sandra, just a body. All of you, just bodies. My friends, bodies, staff, bodies. All it is is a bunch of biology. There's no, there's no me. There's no you. There's just biology. Wow, it was so hard. It was so difficult because the whole idea that there's mind, that there's something beyond biology is so ingrained into our experience. But he's right. He's right. If there is no God, there is no you. There's just biology. Now, that may be true. That's just one of those uncomfortable conclusions that you have to embrace if you decide you don't need God. The second one is the illusion of free will. And this may be a new one for you. In a world that's governed by physics, the laws of physics, there is no room for free will. Everything is determined. 
Everything is determined. You may have experienced choosing who you married, but that was determined. Every decision you make is determined. This is called determinism, that everything is determined because the idea of free will does not jive with a, with a universe that is driven by and controlled by the laws of physics. There is no free will. In fact, um, for a couple of years now, I've listened to Sam Harris' um, podcast, his podcast called Waking Up with Sam Harris. Um, as a, it was from one of his titles of one of his books. And one time I listened to the podcast and he was complaining or he was talking about how oftentimes he's misquoted, oftentimes Christians, you know, take things that he says out of context. And he was kind of complaining, kind of tongue in cheek about being criticized and taken out of context and attacked unfairly and people, you know, all that stuff. And then he stopped and he says, but he said, I realize, I realize I have no right to criticize my critics. They have no choice in the matter. And he kind of laughed at himself for being critical of his critics because the critics had no choice because there is no freedom. There is no free will. Everything is determined. Every decision you've ever made is an illusion. Stephen Hawking, who, you know, brilliant Stephen Hawking, who's, you know, suffering from ALS, but his mind is just amazing and who, who, who talks about, writes about things that most of us mere mortals have to just stop and think about, you know. He believes in determinism, that everything is determined. In fact, there was, a, there was a, a, a lecture he did some years ago where he basically said everything about the human experience is determined. But then he said, because it's determined, it doesn't matter, which I just, I don't know. That's, I guess he's right. But here's what he said. I mean, he's, he's a believer in determinism, a believer that there is no free will. And yet, jokingly, he said this. I've noticed that even people who claim that everything is predestined and that we can do nothing to change it, look before they cross the road. <laughs> because once again, we bump into something that may be true. I mean, today I'm not gonna argue that it's not true. I'm not smart enough to argue with these guys, but it may be true, but when it comes to, at the end of the day, it is almost, in fact, it is unlivable. You cannot live as if you are just biology. If you try that, eventually you will be locked up by other biology and you will lose the freedom you never had, okay? It's an, it's an unlivable worldview, but that does not mean it's not true. And the idea of free will, it's, it's almost, in fact, some of you would say that because of your religious convictions, you don't believe in free will either, but you exercise it all the time. Again, it's something that may be true, but if you're going to be an atheist, and if you decide God is not in the picture, this is the logical consequence of that belief system. That's okay. The third one, is the, this is the most disturbing one to me, is the illusion of value. Val there is no room for value. See, I, if I brought a box in here and said, hey, I've got a box full of value, it would be empty. We all believe value is a thing. We exercise and leverage the idea of value all the time, not just financial value, but the value of people, the value of work, the value of exercise. You know, there's the whole concept of value. Um, it's not really scientifically plausible or possible in a world governed by physics. And yet it's something we leverage and talk about every single time we have a conversation, including this conversation. But it is an illusion. There is no, there is no actual, there is no actual value. There is only ascribed value. There is no actual value. There is only ascribed value. That is, there's nothing that actually has value. It's just that in my predetermined way of living, I ascribe value to things. Now, this is a really, really big deal, especially when it comes to justice. Because it means that just or justice is just what we want it to be. 
In other words, in a world where there is no God, where there is no theism, where it's physics, chemistry, and biology, there is no actual justice. So the moment, the moment we reach outside of our biology to try to hold other biology accountable to some invisible thing that we can't put in a box, we have appealed to justice. But it is an illusion. There is no such thing. That justice is just what I want it to be. That just is just what I want it to be. Now, here's a really interesting thing, and I don't want to stay on this for too long. It's not uncommon in our culture now. In fact, if you're a nun, if you fall into that category of I'm just not affiliated, this, is, this may be something that's kind of a tenet for you that you believe, even though maybe you haven't said it in these words. It's not uncommon for people to say when it comes to truth. Okay, I have my truth. You have your truth. You leave my truth alone, I'll leave your truth alone. You have truth, I have truth. We don't even know if there's any universal truth. It doesn't matter. I have what's my truth, you have your truth. And you know what? That works when it comes to truth. It does not work when it comes to justice. You will never, ever, ever hear anyone who is sane say, hey, I have my justice, you have your justice. Don't try to impose your justice on me and I won't try to impose my justice on you. When it comes to truth, I can have my truth. When it comes to justice, I want you to be accountable to my sense of justice. But I'm telling you, when you extract theism, when you extract God, when we are left with physics, biology, and chemistry, value the sense of ought, the sense of ought not, it all goes away. There is no such thing as value. It is an illusion. Now, here's the thing. That may be true, but you can't live that way. In fact, as soon as you open your mouth, as soon as you begin to talk, as soon as you begin to argue, as soon as you begin to try to convince somebody, you immediately appeal to this, this thing out there, again, that's invisible, but it's so real we can't even have a conversation without it. Now, those are the first three. The next three I'm gonna go through real quick because these are the ones we grew up with. These are kind of the basic tenets of atheism, but I just wanna make sure I'm fair and review these. Number four, something, something or something came from no thing. Something came from nothing. Now, this is just, this is just that, the big mystery. It's the what happened before the Big Bang, and you can't really say what happened before the Big Bang because nothing happened. And you can't say what was before because before is like a time term, and there was no time. That when the Big Bang happened, suddenly there was time, matter, and space. Well, after the Big Bang, there was suddenly time, matter, and space, and there were the laws of nature, and there were the laws of phys physics that govern all that. But before that, even though you can't use the word before, nobody knows. In fact, Richard Dawkins, he, he, he admits, he says this, that cosmology, cosmology is waiting on its Darwin. That Charles Darwin gave us you know, natural selection and evolution, but we still, we're still waiting on someone to come up with a plausible theory. We're still waiting for somebody to come up with a believable hypothesis. We're still waiting for somebody to come up with something that isn't so extraordinarily improbable that it really falls into the category of impossible. We're still waiting on someone to come up with a theory that explains why anything exists. You believe, and maybe it's true, that there was nothing and there was something. The, the, the fifth one is that first life emerged from no life. 
The first life emerged from no life with no help. The first life emerged from no life with no help. And again, you study this in school and you've heard people talk about this. And because most of us are so far away from this problem, it seems simple. We talked about that a few weeks ago. The further further you are away from a problem, you know, the simpler it looks. Well, what could we get further away from than the formation of first life? That's about as far away from anything as we can get. So for those of us who don't live in that world, the idea of no life becoming first life or simple life seems maybe like a simple problem, but it's not, as you know, because there's no such thing as simple life. There's just such thing as simpler life. But the very first life, the very first life, even the most simple form of life was extraordinarily complex. And so, if you push God out of the picture, you believe, whether you can explain it or not, and this isn't an argument for or against, you believe that the first life, the first life emerged from non-life, from lifeless matter to what Francis Collins calls, I love this phrase, from lifeless matter to the digital elegance of DNA. From lifeless matter to the digital elegance of DNA. And then the last one, the last one, number six, is that natural selection is responsible for all life after first life. That natural selection is responsible for all life, all life forms, all the variety we see, all the varieties that have come and gone through the years, that natural selection is responsible for all life after the first life. Now, when I read The God Delusion, um, which is just a fascinating book, I mean, all of these, these guys, the, the men and women, but primarily the men who've written these books, they're all so ridiculous, ridiculously smart. It's just, just fascinating. When I got to the end of The God Delusion, uh, Richard Dawkins is making his case for natural selection, that this unguided, purposeless, but somewhat focused thing that's an invisible. I couldn't bring natural selection in here in a box and say, hey, here's the thing, here's the reason you're here. It's, it's, I will talk about it a little more in a minute, but at the end of the book, Richard Dawkins summarizes natural selection. And honestly, when I read this summary, when I read this summary, I thought he was kind of making fun of his own view. So I just wanna read you a rather lengthy quote from The God Delusion where he talks about um, natural selection. And I understand what he's doing. He's he's trying to bring some life and some emotion into this sort of lifeless conversation about, you know, we're all, you know, related to an early life form and something came from nothing and all the things that um, he talks about in the book. But here, here is... Perhaps the best description of natural selection I've ever seen, ever read, and this comes straight from Richard Dawkins himself in context. Here's what he says. He says, think about it. On one planet, and possibly only one planet, in the entire universe, molecules that would normally make nothing more complicated than a chunk of rock, molecules that would normally make nothing more complicated than a chunk of rock, gather themselves together into chunks of rock-sized matter of such staggering complexity that they are capable of running, jumping, swimming, flying, seeing, and hearing, talking about us, capturing and eating other such animated chunks of complexity, capable in some cases of thinking and feeling and falling in love with yet other chunks of complex matter. I know, when I read this, I kind of laughed. I thought, are you making fun of evolution? Are you making fun of natural selection? No, he's, he's in, you know, in his creative way, kind of trying to make us all go, wow, that's amazing. In fact, look at how he, he finishes the, this statement. He says this, we now understand, and he's talking specifically about Charles Darwin. He says, we now understand essentially how the trick is done. 
okay. That's, I mean, that may be true, that just through this invisible force that we refer to as natural selection, the most simplest form of life became every form of life that has ever existed since then, up until now, with a lot of life forms that are extinct and we know nothing about. Now, before I wrap up, I just have to say this. When, as I have just read and read and read and just immersed myself in all of this new you know, version of all this interesting stuff, um, I find it personally, this is, and I'm not trying to make an argument for it, this is just an observation. Chalk it up to my ignorance of the fact that I have a master's degree in theology, not biology, okay? So I'll, I'll own my ignorance. <laughs> I find it impossible, impossible to talk about natural selection. I find it impossible to describe natural selection without it beginning to sound like an invisible, personal force with an agenda. I mean, every time I read a, a description of natural selection and the process of natural selection, every time it's almost impossible not to load the discussion up with things that personify this invisible, relentless, focused, discipline, you can't put it out of business, you can't stop it force that resulted in the earliest forms of RNA and then DNA to the point to where we have the world as we see it today. But perhaps that's how we got here. Now, if you have lost faith in God or you are losing faith in God, here's my hunch. <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with any of that, does it? It's not like you had this extraordinary faith in God and I mean, God was faithful and blah, blah, blah. And then you read a book and it just all went away overnight. In fact, your struggle with faith has virtually nothing to do with atheism. Your struggle with faith has virtually nothing to do with the creation of the universe and where did first life come from. It has almost nothing to do with any of that. In fact, as I went through these things, here's what some of you were thinking. You're thinking, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. You're right, I don't think you can live that way, but I don't have to believe, if I don't believe in God, doesn't mean I have to believe that. Well, the smart guys say, oh, yes, you do. But the point is, that's not why you're struggling in your faith. And this is not why, for most of you, if you're honest, this is not the root of. Now, you may have used some of this to kind of support your arguments with your parents, especially, or the people who aren't as smart as you are. But come on, at the end of the day, the reason you've lost faith or the reason you're struggling with faith is far more personal than any of this. It's not that atheism has become appealing or more appealing. It's that your version, that's what we're gonna talk about next week, your version of theism has lost its appeal or doesn't seem as if it could be real. It's not that you have this new infatuation with atheism. It's not that you find it more appealing. It's that your current version or the version of faith, the version of religion, the version of Christianity that you grew up with has lost its appeal. And at times, when compared with what science is telling us, appears as if it couldn't even be real. In other words, you've lost or you're losing your faith in God. And I'm gonna do my best in the next few weeks, if you'll hang with me, I'm gonna do my best to convince you that the God that you quit believing in, the God that you are losing faith in, never existed to begin with. As arrogant as this may sound, that perhaps you had the wrong God. My purpose today is simply to shine a light on the only alternative.
which may be true. It may be true. It may be true that every decision you've made that you felt like was your free decision, your free choice was an illusion. It may be true that you have no value and neither do your children and neither do your grandchildren and neither does your work and neither do the people that you love. It's possible that this is all an illusion. It's possible that there's no justice. It's possible that this thing we keep trying to appeal to to make things fair and to make things even and to make things people are treated correctly, it's possible that all of that is an illusion because there's no mind and there's no you. But here's what I know about most of us. We hope not. We hope not. We hope not. There is something in you that hopes there is more. And there's something in me that hopes we are more. But our only hope for that hope, our only hope for that hope, look up here, your only hope for that hope is God. So who needs God? Perhaps we all do.